The dried blood around his nose was obvious, but it could be considered a badge of honor. A broken nose is not pleasant, but considering the alternative, it could have been a lot worse. It was hard to determine which was hurting more, the broken nose or the dozen or so BBs and the broken glass that was hiding under his skin after being hit with a shotgun blast in the entire front window of the bank. Turning and shooting into the bank was a step up in violence and criminal charges if he was caught and charges were brought. Learning that the bank teller who had been shot was hit in the chest but would recover was Inwardly a relief, but outwardly he expressed his regret as having left a potential witness. That seemed more like the talk of a movie villain than a 17-year-old after his very first bank robbery. At this point in his young criminal career, Glenn had no frame of reference other than what he'd read in crime novels, biographies, and had seen in Hollywood movies and newsreels. It was the middle of the Depression, and things were tough for everyone and there was not a lot of love lost for banks and bankers, so it was easy to justify robbing banks. They were the real bad guys, right? Well, that's the same mythology that was created by Jesse James, and it was exactly that. Mythology. Jesse, too, had been a young bank robber moving through the Midwest under assumed names. In a historical timeline, Glenn was following in Jesse's footsteps just 50 years after Jesse had committed his last crimes. That may seem like a long time, but in 1932, there were plenty of people around who remembered Jesse James. Jesse James was a complicated figure in history and absolutely nothing like the legend and mythology that surrounded his name. Jesse James was a homegrown terrorist who murdered, robbed, and terrorized communities around the Midwest for 15 years. Jesse cloaked himself in stories that he himself fed to the press, but in reality, he was a guy who couldn't get past a civil war that had changed how he lived and told him that what he believed in was wrong. So he set off to make a life miserable for all who disagreed with him. Glenn Williams was also moving through a country and society that disagreed with his beliefs and activity. But Glenn never claimed that what he was doing was altruistic. He knew he was a thief and now a bank robber. And that is exactly what he wanted to be. My name is Jeff Fargin, and this is the High Adventure Podcast. Hello and welcome to Season 4 of the High Adventure Podcast. This is Episode 4, so if you've missed the previous episodes... I'd encourage you to go back and get up to speed on this story. If you're new to the High Adventure podcast, I hope you'll go back and listen to the previous seasons. I think you might enjoy some of those stories. I want to encourage you to go to our website or the show notes and check out our sponsors and our affiliates. And don't forget our feature documentary film, Assault on El Capitan, that's available on streaming sites everywhere. And last but not least, our audiobook, Everest Alone, Maurice Wilson's 1934 journey to be the first person to stand on the summit. Everest Alone is available on our website and through most audiobook publishers. And you can reach us at all the usual social media platforms, but the easiest way is to go to our website, accidentalproductions.net. And we also post these episodes on both our YouTube and Vimeo channels. And both these channels are under our company name, Accidental Productions. So please subscribe to both of these channels. 
I'm excited to announce that we've released two new shows as part of our podcast network. Our first show is called Mark Hummel's Harmonica Party, and it's being released on both an audio podcast platform and a YouTube show. Mark's a Grammy-nominated and Blues Award winner who's not afraid to express his opinions. We'll hear Mark's take on the blues and what life's like on the road. We'll hear music from Mark's influences, and Mark plays a few tunes live on each episode. So check us out if you're a music lover. This is a sort of looking behind the curtain and see what it's really like being a working musician and a road dog. Along with Harmonica Party, we've released BingeCast, where my co-host Lori and I discuss, recommend, and critique podcasts. We've mined the podcast landscape for you and have suggestions for you in each podcast genre. We also throw in a wildcard suggestion of a binge-worthy show that's out there streaming somewhere. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast and to our YouTube channel for all of our content. Mark Hummel's Harmonica Party has its own YouTube channel, so please stop by there and take a look and subscribe. It is called Mark Hummel's Harmonica Party. I'll leave links of all these shows in the show notes. Hey, maybe you out there have a podcast or an idea for a podcast. Shoot us a message through our website and maybe you can become part of our network or even produce a show of your own. As I was thinking about this story and this episode, I tried to put myself in Glenn's place. Now, any of us can only do that to a certain extent. First of all, we're, we're not living in 1932 and in the middle of the Great Depression. Secondly, most of us have not spent our youth in and out of reform schools and prisons. As an adult, I can easily look at Glenn and say that he could have made other choices, and that's true. But as we look at our lives holistically, we can all look back at things that happened in our life or decisions that we made that could have resulted in some very different outcomes than what actually happened. Glenn was seemingly always desperate for a gun, but what really is a gun for a criminal? It's a tool. It's protection. But really, it's the single thing that gives a criminal, regardless of his courage, a sense of confidence. If you've ever held a handgun, you will feel an undeniable sense of power and confidence. You feel at that moment that nothing can get you and no one can hurt you. I tell you, this is how it feels even if you're holding an unloaded or even a non-functioning handgun. You've felt the power of holding a water gun with cold water pointing at your sibling or your friend on the beach. This feeling is empowering, but it's also very dangerous. If you have a handgun and you were raised to obey laws and function normally in society, there is very little, if any, chance you would or could shoot someone. But if someone is pointing a gun at you, you can easily get yourself shot and killed if you are not willing to shoot and kill. Which, for most of us, is an unimaginable horror. In my opinion, it's the gun that creates the confidence and the bravado, not the person themselves. One-on-one -on -one in a fistfight, both of these people might walk away because close-up violence is scary and it's dangerous and it's painful. Gun violence is immediate and permanent. When I was a young man, I, by sheer luck and circumstances, got a handgun. I had the thing less than a week before I was involved in something that could have been life-ending or, at minimum, life-changing. And it was. I've told this story in the past on other shows, but... Uh, I'm going to give you that story now. It was recorded in a different location with different equipment, so the sound quality won't match our regular show, but you'll get the idea. It was during this incident that I realized the raw power of holding a gun. 
and really how cowardly it is to point a gun at another person. If you both put your guns down, would you be willing to fist fight? Many say they would, but most won't. Fighting hurts, and you might lose and take a beating. Many of the people I see who seem to want to carry guns would never have the courage to be engaged in an actual fist fight. They'd be far too scared. If you're unwilling to shoot someone in the face and are too frightened to walk around the world unarmed, why don't you just carry a golf club or a cane? You'll have some of the confidence and others will recognize your weapon and you won't ever shoot someone or be shot because you pointed a gun. I drove a van for a number of years. It's a 1975 Ford Econoline 150. Three speeds on the column. So I had a van for sale. And I got a call of somebody wanting to purchase this van. But they were moving through town very, very quickly. They said they had a few minutes to stop, take a look, make the transaction, and move on. I didn't question this. I didn't know where they were going. I didn't know where they came from. But I had the van for sale and I needed to sell it. And when I met him, he didn't drive it. He started it up. It started. He said, it's fine. I believe I was asking $1,200 for the van. Not a huge amount of money even back then. The van worked well, had good tires. It was going to last a long time. So this guy said, will you take $1,000? I said, no, I need $1,200. And the van was worth actually a little more. I just needed to get rid of it. So I'm asking $1,200. And the guy says, well... I'll give you $1,000 and pick anything you want out of my trunk. He pops open his trunk. It's loaded with tools. It's loaded with hardware of all kinds. I don't know where this guy got this stuff. He's got a wife in the front seat. He's got a couple of scrappy kids in the back seat. And I noticed that he's got a holster with a handle of a gun sticking out. I said, I'll take that. And he pulled it out and he handed it to me. He says, okay. I said, deal. I signed over the pink slip. Off he went. I'm standing there with a leather sort of holster that you put on your belt. Got engraving in it that's kind of like a like a cowboy on a bucking horse. It's just very rodeo, very childlike almost. And I pulled the gun out. It's a nickel-plated 38 Special with a 6-inch barrel. It's a serious gun. And I hadn't had handguns before. I just thought, cool, now I have a gun. I had no idea what the laws were in gun transfer. I didn't know if I could accept this gun. It never even occurred to me. The guy said, I got a thousand bucks in a gun and I, good deal, done, off we go. And I've had 22 rifles in the past and I've shot other rifles, but I'd never had a handgun. So I decided I'm going to go down to um, this area that's near a body of water. And I called a friend of mine and I said, hey, what are you doing? I'm just hanging around. I said, I got a new gun. Let's go shoot it. Now, this area where we went was an area that, as kids, we used to go down and shoot BB guns. It was a open space. There's lots of broken glass where people had shot with BB guns in the past. It was just kind of a place. People went down there with their bow and arrow. It was whatever you got, and you needed a sort of secure, safe place to discharge this stuff. Here it was, but it was next to this body of water, and So at this point, I'm 26 years old. I'm not a kid, but in my mind at this point now, it feels like I'm a kid. I was a kid, but I was 26. 
Um, we both had jobs. We both had everything young people have as they're moving through and entering a career. So I have this gun. We go down. We set up a couple cans we find, and we start firing this gun at the cans. No danger of anybody getting hit. I haven't fired a 38 Special before. I hadn't fired handguns, really. We didn't have any eye protection. We didn't have any hearing protection. Um, so you fire six rounds out of this gun. It's loud, and you've got ringing in your ears. It sort of feels like in the old days when you used to go to a nightclub or a concert and you didn't wear hearing protection and they were playing some loud music and you heard that ringing all night long while you were sleep, trying to sleep. So after a few rounds, five, six, seven, ten rounds, I don't know however many I had because the guy also gave me a bunch of ammunition. I didn't buy any. He just gave me boxes of shells. Now keep in mind, I have no idea where this gun came from. I don't know if it had been used in crimes before, if it was ever actually acquired legally. There's a serial number on it, but I don't know anything about acquiring, shooting, owning handguns. So I'm firing at the cans and my ears are ringing. I can't hear a thing. He's trying to talk to me and I can't hear him. I'm just looking at him, shaking my head. And I see this look on his face of seriousness, very seriousness. And I'm thinking that, why is he so serious? We're just shooting a gun and he's kind of looking past me. So I turn around and there's a guy standing about 100 feet away. And he's standing there and he's holding a gun. And I see him and I recognize it. And I thought, well, this is odd. He's kind of wearing a suit and he's got a car that he's pulled down this kind of dirt road that we weren't able to drive down. But he's there and he's got a gun and he's raising it up and he's pointing it at me. And he's saying something, but I can't hear a word he's saying that ringing in my ears is really loud and he's 100 feet away. And, and my friend is trying to tell me something I can't hear a word he's saying either. And my friend drops down behind this log and he's hiding. And he's looking up at me and he's like, come here. And I'm like, what? Finally, I get what he's trying to say. He's telling me to drop the gun. And I look over at the guy and the guy is pointing the gun at me, telling me to drop the gun. And I'm thinking, uh, no, I'm not doing that because someone's pointing a gun at me. I'm not going to stand here and be shot by this guy, whoever he is, because I have no idea who he is. So he's yelling and I'm yelling, no. He's saying, drop the gun. I can now start to make out what he's saying after my friends kind of told me this is what he's heard. And I'm putting two and two together. I'm matching the sounds to the lips and I'm trying to, and I figured out, he's like, he's yelling at me, drop the gun. And I yell back at him, you drop your gun. And I, now I'm pointing my gun at him and he's pointing his gun at me. And there we stand. He then opens his car door and gets behind the door. So now he's in a shooting position. Now he's in a, what I would call a Maybe it's defensive, he's behind the door, but it's pretty offensive that he's ready to start doing something different than what he has been doing, which is just yelling at me. So this guy yelling at me to drop the gun just leads me to yell at him to drop his gun. So this goes on for quite a while. It feels like an eternity, but in reality, it was probably three minutes, four minutes, which is a long time to be pointing a gun at somebody and having a gun pointing back at you and nobody's firing. My friend's hiding behind the log. The other guy's hiding behind the door. And I'm out in the open pointing my gun. My friend is yanking on my pant leg. And he says, he's a cop. And I say, I haven't heard that. He didn't identify himself. I don't know who he is, but he needs to drop his gun. And I guess I was yelling down to my friend because I couldn't hear myself talk very well. And he was 
yelling up at me and so that I could hear. So I'm yelling back at him. And I guess this guy heard me yelling that. So he holds up a badge and I see that it's a badge. But at this point, why would I believe this is a real badge? To me, this is just a guy who came down here and pulled a gun on me. And he keeps holding it up and he's coming out from behind the door. I thought, well, he's moving away from the door. He's got the badge. He might actually be a cop. So I lower the gun. I don't put it down on the ground. I lower it. He keeps his gun on me and moves closer. As he gets closer, I can now start to make out what he's saying. And he tells me he's a fish and game officer. And I thought, wow, fish and game officer dressed like this in this unmarked car. I've seen fish and game people around when I've been fishing or been at the outdoors. I've never seen one look like this. So he comes forward and he's brave. I mean, I have to give him credit. I still have a gun in my hand and he's pointing his at me, but I've lowered mine. I understand that, you know, what he's doing So as he moves closer, he clearly then identifies himself as fishing game and then says, please drop the gun. So I lay the gun down and I say, what's the problem? He says, you can't fire guns here. And I said, I fired weapons, guns, BB guns, thrown rocks, shot arrows in this location for decades. And he said, you can't do that anymore. Times have changed. I said, okay. And he turned around, he walked back to his car. He didn't take my gun. He didn't ask me anything about the gun. He got in his car and he drove away. And I picked up the gun, unloaded it. We walked back to our car and went away. And I never went back to shoot at that location again. But I realized later how close I was to not only shooting somebody, but being shot myself. Now, this was 1984-ish, 85 Had this been 2020, he probably would have shot me. If the minute I pointed the gun at him, as we see in the world now, they will shoot you for reaching anything into your waistband or not doing what they say or, you know, whatever the case may be. I pointed this gun at him. I was ready to fire and he was ready to fire. I'm standing near a log looking for cover. He's behind the car door. We're yelling at each other. Neither one of us are understanding. It was a recipe for a shootout. And we didn't have one. But it was an interesting day. B.J. Glenn's new partner had driven from Minneapolis to Aurora, Illinois. Pulling into a dark alley, B.J. got out and knocked on this decaying door. An old man soon opened the door and B.J. waved to Glenn to follow him into the building. And Glenn climbed out of the car and, as usual, walked freely and without reservation into the unknown. It truly is a different mindset when you, as an individual, trust someone who has proven throughout their life to be untrustworthy. Honor among thieves is the proverb that essentially says criminals won't steal from each other or testify against one another. Well, we know that that's not necessarily true. The original proverb has been credited to Cicero, a politician in ancient Rome who was assassinated in 43 BCE, that's before Common Era. Was Cicero a crooked politician assassinated by another crook? I don't know, but that would be ironic. Cervantes published the book Don Quixote in 1612 and wrote that 
The old proverb still holds good. Thieves are never rogues amongst themselves. Which is another way of saying honor among thieves. But just because it's old and has been written down a bunch of times doesn't make it true. Even a young criminal like Glenn has done enough time in jails and prisons to know it's not true. But here he is after committing a crime and traveling with a self-confessed career criminal, willing to walk into the abyss without any question. Glenn walked into the old building without question and found BJ with a little old man who turned out to be a doctor. The old man told Glenn to sit down and he would examine him. The guy was nice enough, but something wasn't right about him. Or the situation, but Glenn wasn't exactly in a place to question. It was dark, and he was in a strange town, and he was in pretty bad shape. And even if he did walk out of here because of the strange vibe, where would he go? He didn't even really know where he was. This really was like a movie now. Beat-up criminal in a run-down back office with an old doctor who understood how to keep a secret. Well, it turns out Honor Among Thieves and the Hippocratic Oath are closely related. Long before the Patient's Bill of Rights, this old doc practiced medical privacy, but this privacy came with a price. The old doc told Glenn that he had a broken nose and that he could reset it, and then they would go to work on cleaning and taking care of the shotgun hits that were like bee stings all over his upper body. The doc told Glenn he could give him some pain medication to make him more comfortable, and Glenn soon learned that that pain medication that the doc was going to give him was from his personal stash, and that pain medication was very important to the doc. The doc was a morphine addict, and he was pretty much relegated these days to practicing medicine on people who didn't have many choices about where they could get treatment. So, this really was an early version of the Affordable Care Act. After having his nose set and in a bit of a morphine haze, Glenn moved to another room to lay down. While recovering in the small room, Glenn heard the back door open. Nervous about police and not sure if this thief had the honor necessary to remain quiet, Glenn looked into the examination room from his small recovery alcove. Two men walked in the door carrying a third guy. The old doc told them to lay the man on the floor. The man was bleeding badly from his stomach. The doc got on his knees and began cutting the clothes off the man. There was blood everywhere, and soon the floor and the doc were covered in blood. The man had an obvious and sizable gunshot wound in the stomach. He wasn't moving. The doc looked up at one of the guys standing next to him and said, Bootsy, your brother's dead. That'll be a C-note. Bootsy said, God, you're a cold bastard. The doc just said, Get him out of here. Can't have bodies on my tables. Bootsy pulled out a bill and gave it to the doc, and they carried the body of his brother back out the door and into the alley. Glenn later asked BJ what happened to the guys that the doc couldn't save. BJ told him that no matter who it was or what relation the dead body was, he's weighed down and thrown in the lake. Glenn asked if this kind of thing happened a lot. BJ told him that it happened enough so that everyone knew what to do. Glenn stayed in that little room at the doc's office for a couple days recovering, and they tried to make conversation, but as Glenn put it, the doc was like talking to a morphine-laden parrot. When BJ came in one day a bit agitated, he told Glenn he'd just robbed a bank and it was time to go. Glenn later learned that the old morphine-soaked doc was found dead with a bullet in the back of his head. 
Honor amongst thieves? I guess it's more of a guideline than a rule. Two days later, Glenn was in a bank filling out a deposit slip. Now, we all know that Glenn was not going to deposit anything. As BJ came in and yelled to everyone who would listen, This is a robbery. Everyone on the floor. Glenn moved to the door as BJ ordered the manager to empty the teller drawer, and three minutes later, they were in a stolen car and headed out of town. Exhausted from the stress of robbing a bank and still healing from a broken nose and a shotgun blast, Glenn had fallen asleep in the back of the car as BJ drove through the night. Waking up a few hours later, Glenn was shocked to see they were on the outskirts of Minneapolis and heading into town. Glenn panicked and told BJ that there was no way he could go back to Minneapolis. He was still wanted for the bank robbery there. BJ wanted to see his daughter and told Glenn they'd be off again in a few days. Marie, BJ's daughter, was waiting when they arrived at the apartment. And BJ went to bed while Marie and Glenn stayed up for hours talking. Before going to bed himself, he decided to look in on BJ. He looked tired these past few days and he knew that planning the bank robbery had been stressful for BJ. When he opened the door a crack, he knew. He didn't know how he knew, but he did. He went over to BJ, who was lying on his back, and reached down and felt BJ's cold hand. He was dead. Now what? He'd pulled off two bank robberies. BJ had done a third alone while they were on the road. The partner he's been looking for that would show him how to behave as a real criminal was dead. There was no reason to stay around and a lot of reasons to leave. Glenn packed his things and went to the train station that night. He bought a one-way ticket to Chicago. The big time. The town of Al Capone. The place where real criminals practice their craft. On the train and rolling along the tracks to Chicago, Glenn was getting nervous. He'd been counting on BJ to show him the ropes of professional criminality and to help him make some contacts in the criminal world. He was pulling into what he believed was the Disneyland of crime. It was where the real criminals lived, and he was anxious to become one of them. Now that BJ was dead, he was again out on his own and on the road alone. Glenn believed in the honor among thieves proverb, but he also knew that pulling into a new town and committing crimes without any idea whose feet he was stepping on, could be very dangerous. He did believe in the proverb about honor among thieves, but he saw a heartless, drug-addled doctor quickly and emotionless take $100 from a guy whose dead brother was lying at their feet. Was this normal or an anomaly? Were criminals truly this heartless? Glenn knew the answer, but he continued to hold out this romantic ideal of what it meant to be a big-time criminal. Whatever big-time means. BJ and Marie had been kind to him, but he knew that either BJ or Marie or both would have turned him into the police in half a second if it meant they could stay out of jail. Staying out of jail was one thing, but staying alive in a city where the rules of the underground were not yet clear was going to be a challenge. After a few weeks of wandering, Glenn met Jean, a young woman who worked in a grocery store and lived in the apartment above the store. They were immediately attracted to each other. She offered Glenn her couch for a few days, and he was happy to be off the road. He quickly accepted, and it was clear she thought there could be something more, maybe more permanent with this young man who seemed to have a lot of money and he had a lot of ambition. Glenn again used the name Paul Gregory, and that's the name Jean knew him by. 
It was a good place to settle for a bit until he figured out what to do. Within a few days, he got her to loan him her father's car. Her father was an alcoholic who spent his days drinking and didn't leave the house much, and he never drove, so he wouldn't miss the car. Glenn was hoping that this was true, as one morning he drove off to Peoria, robbed a bank, and returned a couple days later. Arriving at the apartment at night, Glenn sensed something wasn't right. He knew it when he walked in and saw his suitcase, pistol, and shoebox full of money that he'd left all lined up neatly in a row. Glenn immediately knew that this was the end of the hospitality as Jean confronted him about all his lies. She had, while he was gone, gone through his things, found some names, and began calling around, and she quickly learned he was lying about everything he'd told her. He quietly and quickly gathered his things and stepped out of the apartment and into the alley, where he was immediately grabbed by police. He was handcuffed and pushed into the police car. As they were driving, the cops looked through Glenn's things. They found the gun right away, and after looking through the shoebox, the cop in the passenger seat told the driver what he'd found. There was $1,100 in the shoebox. This was a huge amount of money during the Depression. The driver made a turn that took them into the darkness of a side street, and Glenn was sure this was it. The cops would kill him and take his money. Half of that was true. The driver pulled over. They got Glenn out of the car, removed his handcuffs, gave him his suitcase, and told him to get himself out of town. The cops gave him a $10 bill and directions to the bus station with orders to be on the first bus out of town. As they drove off, though, Glenn pulled the keys to Gene's father's car from his pocket. The $900 from the Peoria robbery was in the trunk. So he walked back to where the car was parked, opened the trunk, grabbed the cash, and caught a cab to the bus station. Glenn bought a ticket and boarded a bus for, of all places, Seattle. But late in the afternoon, when the bus pulled into Denver, Glenn got off and found a room in a rundown rooming house, and he settled in. Out of guilt, he decided to call Jean and apologize. He actually did care for her. Jean took his call, but it wasn't pleasant. She did tell him that she had identified him as the bank robber from his last job, and that now the word was out. Glenn thought that staying one step ahead was his only hope. He knew that the bus and train stations would be watched, so he approached a cab and asked the driver to drive him to Reno. The normally $9 bus ride cost him $100 in cab fare, but that and a healthy tip would keep the cabbie's mouth shut. Are cabbies on the honor thing? Glenn hoped so. From Reno, he met a truck driver at a truck stop and hitched a ride to Quincy, Washington, and he was now only 30 miles from Wenatchee. Yep, he's doing it. He's going back to Wenatchee to see the folks and have a visit. What could possibly go wrong in this situation? Here's a spoiler alert. A lot can go wrong. Glenn took a bus from Quincy to Wenatchee and arrived at night. Not really sure what his next move was going to be, he decided walking up and knocking on his parents' door probably wasn't the best option. After all, the last time he'd tried this, his parents turned him into the police. He found the house of Justin, an old friend and burglar. Justin told Glenn that he'd had a hundred stolen payroll checks from a local apple farming company that wouldn't be missed, and they were as good as cash. They could fill them out for 25 bucks a piece and cash them at stores around town. During the Depression, a payroll check was as good as cash, and 
Stores would cash them for customers. The banks in rural areas were not trusted, and with a trusted company check, the store owners felt the money was guaranteed. Now, Glenn would be recognized immediately if he was out pushing bad checks in Wenatchee. He stayed at Justin's place, writing them out while Justin went into town and began cashing as many checks as he could with what forgers call papering the town. The next day, Justin brought back $300. Not bad when you understand that the average salary in those depression years was $1,300 a year. And if they managed to cash all the checks, they'd be making about $3,000. This seemed to be going well until day two when Justin tried to cash checks at the same places he'd cashed them the day before. The shop owners called the police, and Justin was picked up that afternoon. Glenn heard about it when his brother knocked on the door of the house where Glenn was staying. And Like in any small town, word travels fast when someone new comes to town, and in this case, someone new was someone well-known. As Glenn opened the door, his brother punched him squarely in the jaw and knocked him down. He was furious that Glenn had come back and once again put them all in this situation. But here it was. The punch served its purpose. It was frustration, and Glenn knew that he had to take that one, and he deserved it. Glenn's brother told him that when Justin was arrested, he told the police that Glenn was back in town and that the whole thing was Glenn's idea, and that the police had gone to their parents' house and told them the story. For better or worse, your kids are your kids, and don't we all want our kids to have a smooth path through life? Even if the path they choose is tough and the road has a lot of potholes, wouldn't we all want to try to fill some of those potholes along that bumpy road? Though Glenn's parents were beyond angry, they felt the best way for Glenn to survive was to help him escape. His father had a plan, and Glenn's brother delivered it to Glenn, along with a couple of blankets and some food. Glenn's escape was going to be on foot. Glenn was told to hike up by night, 15 miles across the mountains to a small town called Kashmir, and to meet his father at a friend's farm. And that's exactly what he did. After a long night of hiking, he found his brother, father, and his father's friend Ryan Jackson, and they were all waiting for him at Ryan's farmhouse. Learning that the Seattle police had been alerted and were watching the bus and train stations, his father took Glenn to the Yakima bus station and put him on a bus headed for Jacksonville, Florida. He told Glenn again to please straighten up, but that he couldn't come back and couldn't contact them again until he did. He told Glenn he loved him, but the family couldn't live like this anymore. His father pulled out $50 and told Glenn that the 50 was all he could afford. Glenn refused the money, knowing how badly his father needed that money, and unbeknownst to his father, he had a lot more than 50 bucks in his pocket. Glenn asked his father to give his love to his mother and to tell her that he was sorry. His father gave Glenn a folded letter that his mother had written. Glenn then gave his father an envelope with $100 in it, but told him not to open it until he got home. On the bus, Glenn unfolded the piece of paper. He immediately recognized his mother's soft and formal handwriting. It said, My dearest son, I don't know where all this is going to lead. I would prefer that you surrender and accept the punishment. At least you would be safe, and at some time in the future you would be able to come home. We could visit you, and you would not be cut off from your family. If you run, you'll be hunted like an animal, and you will eventually be captured. I don't know what went wrong in your life, but I feel a great burden of guilt. I will continue to love you until I no longer live. 
Glenn got off the bus in Jacksonville, Florida five days later. Checking into a hotel, he knew that no one would recognize him here and that Washington State and specifically Wenatchee were in his rearview mirror. No one would be looking for him, so it was time to figure out what to do next. Using the name Ralph Halscombe, Glenn told people he was from South Dakota and came south to find work during the cold winter months. But Glenn's definition of work was different from most, and he knew he would be low on cash soon. So, after hitching a ride to Macon, Georgia, just to see what the South was like, Glenn found two banks that seemed ready for a withdrawal. He went back to Jacksonville to give it some thought. A week later, Glenn was on a dark side street in Macon, Georgia, breaking into a car. The idea was to steal the car in the dark and hide it and himself until the bank opened. He would rob the bank and drive to Atlanta, where he would catch a bus back to Jacksonville. Easy enough. He had his gun in his shoulder holster, and he quietly broke into the car. He was laying on the front seat, pulling out his wire cutters before he could hotwire the car when the door was pulled open and he was dragged out in the street by his feet. Two Macon cops were standing above him, and before he could say a word, they were kicking him. One cop stood him up while the other punched him in the stomach and ribs. It had been a while since Glenn had taken a beating like this. He tried to tell the cops that he was lying in the open car for a place to sleep for the night. They hit him again while they asked him why he had a gun in a shoulder holster. The cops took Glenn's money and the money he had on him, and then they took him to county jail. Sitting in a large cell with 15 other guys, he asked an African-American guy sitting next to him what this place was all about. The guy asked him what he'd done. Glenn told him the story of being in the car and the cops grabbing him and pulling him out. The guy told him that they were all going to court soon and that every small crime in this court gets you 30 days on the chain gang, but if you're black, you get 60. Upon sentencing, Glenn was fitted with ankle chains and loaded onto a truck and taken to a remote rural area and led into a wooden shack that doubled as a dormitory and with 10 other men made their way into what would become home for the next 30 days. This was an old-fashioned prison movie-style chain gang, and they would spend the next month working on a road crew with shotguns pointed at them at every minute. In our next episode, Glenn works the chain gang and is released and back in Jacksonville, where he burglarizes a house and finds the tools that'll keep him happy and prosperous for quite a while, but will ultimately find him facing a life sentence. Thank you for listening. We'll see you on the rock. Show.